welcome everybody here. Turn on my mic. There it is. Uh, welcome, and today we are beginning a new chapter in the book of Romans. We are starting chapter, anybody tracking? Ten. Ten. Yes. So today we're going to exposit, we're going to see what the Lord has to say to us in the first four verses. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1 and ending in verse 4. The inerrant word of God reads as follows. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your powerful word this morning, which reminds us of the power of prayer when it comes to praying for the lost. Also, may we be reminded of the warning that even religious people can have a worthless zeal that is man-centered. Lord, so then may your Holy Spirit convict us of how holy you are, that we may turn to you in repentance. We ask this in the name of the one who gives us our righteousness, that is our King and Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so to look at this passage this morning, I've titled the sermon, Christ, the only hope for true righteousness. He is the only hope for true righteousness. So why did I qualify it as true righteousness? Well, if you remember last time, as we finished up chapter 9, we saw how in one sense or another, everyone everywhere is pursuing some type of righteousness. Someone is always trying to be good, to be right, to be looked at as being virtuous. When we saw where true righteousness comes from, we learned that ultimately the righteousness that matters is that righteousness that God demands and he defines it. He gets to call the shots on what is right, what is virtuous, because that's according to his holy character. God also defines what is contrary to his character. That is sin, that is the evil and corruption that we see in our world. He gets to say what is evil and corrupt. And basically that's anything that is against his holy character. So then as a quick reminder, when we talk about righteousness, what are we talking about? What does righteousness really mean in the biblical and ultimate sense? Well, that means a status of legal rectitude that satisfies God's moral requirements according to his character. And as Paul spoke about righteousness in the previous chapter, he came to a conclusion his conclusion was this, that righteousness, that right standing before God that is required is impossible to attain by human merit. 
Stop trying. You will fail. You've already failed if that's the way that we are attempting to be right with God. And unfortunately, the people of Israel, they took the mentality and the approach of, okay, we see God's requirements. We think we can meet them if we just try really hard. We can meet the demands if we just labor to accomplish those demands. And Paul says that because of that, his conclusion there is that because of that, they have missed the boat. They are not righteous. They are lost in their sin. Then Paul pointed out the second portion of his conclusion that while the Jewish folks miss the boat and they are lost in their sin, pursuing righteousness on their own, the Gentiles, those dirty Gentiles who were not looking for righteousness, stumbled upon the gospel of grace by listening, by hearing the word being preached. God called them. They understood who God was. They understood they were in sin. And they believed. They believed the gospel. And because of that, Paul tells us that they were righteous before God. By grace through faith. In the righteousness that the people of Israel should have had, and they were pursuing after that righteousness in a man-centered way, it fled from them, while the Gentiles, that wanted nothing to do with God, were saved by grace, through faith, by the hearing of the gospel. So then here we can see the first application for our sermon today, as we're going to explore the continuation of Paul's lament for the people of Israel, are we, are you grieved by your people that are not saved, that are not Christians? This could be our immediate or extended family. This could be within our circle of friends or co-workers, acquaintances. This could be our community, our city, our country, etc. Are we grieved and burdened that people are headed into eternal judgment? Paul was. He was very burdened. Which takes us to really put forth here what the main point is going to be as we look at this text. What's Paul's main point? Is this short section of the text? Well, that him being burdened by their unbelief, that is Israel's unbelief, Paul is drawn to prayer and to correction of their error. Okay, Paul prays for them. And he breaks it down. What is it that they fell short on? What is it that they weren't wrong on? Okay, that's the model that Paul uses. So today, as we see this cry of lament from Paul, which began in chapter 9, him being saddened and burdened that the people of Israel were lost, he picks up that very concept here again. And by and large, we see that Paul is doing something about it. He's not just being burdened and leaving it there. No, he's actually doing something about it. So let us look at the first verse and at the first point. Paul's burden for Israel. Romans 10.1 reads as follows. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Okay, that's the first verse. 
we're going to look at this as Paul giving us an example of what the life and the love of a Christian should look like in application. Okay, first we're going to see here that Paul giving us an example of how a Christian should have this attitude of being burdened by those that are not saved, that he shares this burden with others. Galatians 6.2 reminds us of the following. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. As we can attest from reading the rest of Scripture, Paul had many burdens. He was not living this honky-dory life in comfort. No, he was very burdened. And he chooses to focus on this one thing. What is he burdened? That his people are not saved. They do not know God. They are lost. And he's expressing and bearing that burden with the church at Rome. So we should bear each other's burdens. That's the first example we see of what we should do as Christians, right? Bear each other's burdens. Now, it says there in Galatians 6.2 that in doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in this context, what, what is the law of Christ? Well, let's take, let's take a look here. Law of Christ, if we look at 1 John 4.21, it says, And this command we have from Him, that means from Christ, whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. We cannot claim to love God and not have love for our neighbor. It's not possible. He says, you must. It's like, well, you know, if they've been nice to you, you should, nope. Whoever loves God must also have love for his brother. And then John 13, 34 and 35. In the context of what is the law of Christ as we share burdens with our brethren? It says this. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this is a high calling, okay? Paul is burdened, and he's expressing this burden to his brothers and sisters. Who's his burden for? For the Jews. Now, the two verses we just read can make application to the love that the believers should have towards other Christians, of course, that's a given, but also toward those who are not Christian. Jesus commands us to love one another in the faith, but also our neighbor in the more general sense. And as this burden is crushing Paul for his fellow Jews, he knows that they are not Christian, and more precisely, that they actually hate him. Let that sink in. These people that Paul is so burdened for, they don't like him. They actually hate him. Acts 23, verse 12, it says this. <clears throat> when it was day, <clears throat> the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath 
neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. That's the people that Paul is burdened by. But yet, there's more. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and the first half of 25 says this. <clears throat> Five times I received at the hand of the Jews praise and welcoming and feast. No. I received from them the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This gives us an idea, a picture of the attitude of the religious Jews towards Paul. It's not a friendly welcome. It's all the opposite to the point of wanting to kill Paul. They persecuted him, attempted to murder him, they jailed him, they beat him, etc. Now, my brothers and sisters, please let this sink in. That's the people that Paul is burdened for. Okay? That they were not saved. He's lamenting for those people. This is the first attitude that we should learn that Paul is exemplifying here for us. This reminds us of the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke 6, 32. It says the following. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Okay, so this is all correlating here. Now some of us, some of you, may be so proud and self-centered and self-righteous that what the Lord Jesus is saying here, that it is easy to love those who love you, you can't even do that. Let's be more specific. Am I loving my spouse? She loves me. How am I doing in loving her? How am I loving my children? Those around me? My parents? Start thinking of people that you know love you. Are you loving them back? Is your relationship with them one of love and grace and peace? Or do you refuse? And in that, we see that what the Lord Jesus tells us, that should be easy because even the sinners, those that are not with Christ, even they do that. Some of us can even do that. That should be a given. That should never be, my brothers and sisters. So the Lord Jesus is telling us there that it's actually possible for non-believers to love those who love them. And we should do that. And one of the tests that validates true faith of the Christian is loving those who hate you and persecute you. This is a very vivid example of Paul providing that example for us. Practicing what the Bible preaches. Paul loved those, not only hated, he wanted to kill them. Okay, straight up. So Paul bears his burdens because that's going to fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is that we should love our brothers and sisters, yes, but even more, love those who hate us. Okay, that's sort of the first 
implication and application that we could learn from. And then secondly, we got to look at Paul's desire. What is he desiring and what is he praying for? Okay, their salvation. He wants them to be saved. Matthew 5, 44, the Lord Jesus speaking again, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? So again, we should desire for those that we love to be saved, to be reconciled to God, to be Christians. But the real test, what is our desire for our enemies? Those that have wronged us, those that have sinned against us, is our desire for them to be saved or to be restored in repentance? My brothers and sisters, if that is not our attitude towards those that have sinned against us, we are in sin. And it's a red flag because we are saying, perhaps God hasn't forgiven me. Because that person that has been loved much, forgives much. And then just a quick note on what having this burden, on what loving our enemies, those that have wrongs, what this does not mean. Let me just throw this out there. This does not mean that we approve of or we stand still for those that are blatantly enemies of the gospel. It does not mean that. Those who are wanting to champion causes that are diametrically opposed to the gospel and to our Christian values, and we just stand there and let them roll over us. It does not mean that. Paul can love the Jews, and he did. And precisely because he loves them, he preaches the gospel without watering it down. Paul is very offensive to them, not because he is a jerk, but because he presents the unwatered gospel to them. Because he loves them, he corrects them and rebukes them at the cost of putting his life on the line. So therefore, this does not mean that we ignore those who are attacking the gospel and our biblical values. No, we stand up against them. We rebuke them. We preach repentance and faith in Christ to them. And we do it with humility and with reverence. That's the hard part. Right? Because I just wanted, all right, let's, it's on. Let's do it. And whoa, whoa, that's not, the, that's not the way to do it. With humility and respect, 2 Timothy 2.25 says, I don't have it on the notes, but it says, so that as we do so, repent, um, Correcting those who contradict the gospel. And then it says this. Why? So that God may perhaps grant them repentance. That's what it says. Let's offend those that oppose. Yes. With the gospel message. Nobody likes to hear the gospel message when we're trapped in our sins. Let us not offend them because we are jerks. And this is really a note to myself. Okay, so we saw Paul's burden. He was for he was crushed that his fellow Jewish folks were 
in their sins and trespasses away from God. They were not his friends, and yet he took that to prayer, and then he did something about it. He evangelized to them. Takes us to point number two. The next two verses we're going to learn that not all devotion and, and zeal, it's true. There is such thing as false devotion. Because devotion towards spiritual things, devotion towards God, is judged by the standard that God has given us. So let us take a look at Romans 10, 2 and 3. <clears throat> it says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So this devotion, this zeal that a person can have, it could either be religious, like somebody's all about their, their religious beliefs, or it could be non-religious, any type of secular cause. But, I will tell you that both instances, whether the zeal and the drive and the passion for a particular cause, religious or otherwise, in both cases, it is spiritual in nature. Because as human beings, we are made and we worship. The question is not whether you worship, the question is what or who do you worship. Scripture gives example of this very thing, someone who had a serious devotion, but it was man-centered, of someone who had made a God in his own image, putting his zeal of his hard work and his devotion to an idol. This narration is given by the prophet Isaiah, when he describes a hard-working man who works with his hands out of wood. He cuts down the trees. He molds them. This is what the prophet says about such men. It says this, Isaiah 44, <coughs> verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> Talking about when he takes that trunk of the tree, he says, Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol and falls down to it, and worships it. And he prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. He has made an idol with his hands, out of the same material that he uses to warm himself, and to cook for himself. Right? This, this seems absurd. How can he do that with one half, and with the other half? He makes figures, and they, he says that those are his God. He made those with his very hands. And here's a warning for us not to trust in the creation. We can create our own idols. We don't need to mold them from wood or, or material. We make our own idols based on the desires of our wicked hearts when we are apart from God. And then we see that there's also a warning against trusting in men for ultimate salvation. Psalm 146, verse 3 says the following, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, meaning a human, in whom there is no salvation. No salvation, there it is. 
political messiahs, a leader of a great cause, celebrity, whatever it is. We are not to trust in them as they're going to lead us to something great. And in even that, in that sense, we should not put our trust even in pastors, even if they are legit and godly men. We should look to them as an example, but not as someone who if, God forbid, they fall and they sin, then all my faith is to be thrown out because the person I admired fell into sin. No. Not to trust in men. So now going back to the case of, of the Jews, somebody could say, wait a minute, but they were not worshiping a false god. They had the scriptures. They knew the true God. Paul says no. Paul says their heart was far away from God. They had a very strong zeal for God, but not according to the true knowledge of who God is. Instead, they took the path of wanting to conform to God's law through a legalistic, through a works-based way. And as they were doing so, they had a harsh opposition to anyone who disagreed with them, to the point of killing them. How does Paul know this? Because he was one himself. And this is recorded in Acts 22, verses 3 through 5. It says this. This is Paul speaking. It says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our forefathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, meaning the Christians, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So Paul, as he is grieving for those people, those Jewish folks that had the zeal for God, the devotion towards God, but were lost, that's what Paul came out of. He was one of them. He had the same zeal, but not according to true knowledge of the God they claimed to follow. They worshipped with devotion, with zeal. Their worship and zeal was spiritual, but it did not cut it. It was wrong. It was man-centered because it was done in falsity not in truth. The words of the Lord Jesus in John 4, 24 says this. When he's speaking to the Samaritan woman, <coughs> God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All worship is spiritual, my friends. When you see people bowing down to idols and statues and doing rituals, that all is spiritual. If it is not done, to Christ, through Christ, for Christ, it is not in truth. It is in falsity. It is in an abomination to the true God. And therefore, it is rejected by God. All worship is spiritual. Not all worship 
is true. It could be the worship of our vices, the worship of the sexualization that is going on in our culture, worship of wealth, of power, of having a great reputation, of giving an image that we and our households are put together very nicely, whatever it may be. As we pursue those things, we make those things into an idol. Our worship of those things is spiritual, but is false. And it is an offense to God. Only those who worship God through King Jesus are worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, Paul says this. <coughs> he says that these folks that had a great zeal for God were ignorant of the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Theologians have spoken of this as the following. When we have a low view of God, we will necessarily have a high view of self. Always. That same idea is applied to the Jews that Paul is describing. And, my friends, that same idea price to us. Our pride, our self-assessment that we're actually not that bad, alienates us from God. Not thinking of God for who He really is gives us a low view of Him and a high view of ourselves. So we should forsake the mediocre thoughts about who God is. And be reminded that he is absolutely holy, just, merciful, eternal, infinite in wisdom, creator of all. Just to mention a few of his perfections. And God, this very moment, holds the breath that we breathe and the beat of our hearts. He could be gone in an instant. Upon realizing how great and mighty and powerful and holy God is, it should drive us to realize that I cannot do anything in and of myself to bring myself to be right with God. I cannot do it. The moment we realize that is the moment that God starts drawing us to himself to be forgiven, to be made new. So remember, Jesus said that he came for those who are in need of a physician, not for those that think that they are well. And then Paul says that in that state of mind, thinking that they could earn God's goodness, that they did not submit to God's righteousness. Right? They have a low view of God, high view of self. Then there's no need to submit to God's right. Why? Like, I'm good. And Paul had already told us in Romans 8, verse 7, the following. It says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So someone who thinks that they're okay, they need nothing from God, they will not see the righteousness of God, and they will not want to submit to the righteousness of God. They can't. So then, it is possible then 
to have a sincere zeal for spiritual things. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. I'm speaking the Christianese. It is possible to do that. To have the devotion and yet be sincerely wrong. Because we either are approaching God through another means that is not Jesus, or if we are in the faith, in our daily walks with God, we can still be in sin, thinking that we do not need daily repentance, thinking that we are right, everybody else is wrong. So what is the way out of that then? For both the Jewish folks that Paul's talking about and for ourselves, what is the way out? Become aware of God's holiness and of your wickedness. In order to obtain the righteousness that God desires that we must have, that he requires that we have, it will be only to operate from the mindset that God has granted me faith. He has cleansed me. He has given me the righteousness that is Christ's. And I fall so short of that. That brings gratitude to the heart of the regenerate, that we have been given the righteousness of Christ by trusting in Him. And then we operate from that to be able to have the burdens that Paul had, to be able to look to others, to love them, to preach the gospel. If we do not operate from a heart of thanksgiving in the conviction that God is so holy and that I need Him on a daily basis, we will not operate in the example that Paul has given us. We will operate perhaps in a way that everyone has wronged me and they need to come to me and I'm actually okay. No, that is not the attitude of a Christian, my brothers and sisters. May we learn from Paul's example. Because think about this. Theoretically speaking, Paul could say, you know what? Forget those people. They want to kill me. And perhaps Paul would even be in the eyes of the world, be right, I'm going to find a way of how I can get back to them. I'm going to get them. And to be honest, that even sounds appealing to me. Like, yeah, let's do it. Hmm. My brothers and sisters, that is not the heart of a Christian. It is not. If we love God and we are loved by him, the scripture that we read earlier from 1 John says that we must, we must love our brothers. Thirdly, which is the title of our sermon, Christ is the only hope for true righteousness. Romans 10 forces this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, so this is a concept that Jesus, his perfect work, what he did, him fulfilling the law. Christ becomes our righteousness. We, we cannot get that righteousness from anywhere else. Stop looking. You're not going to find it. Either from within or from self-reflection or from mysticism or what have you. No, you're not going to get it. Only Christ is the true righteousness that we need. 1 Corinthians 1.30 summarizes as follows, and I use the NASB translation for this one. It says, 
but it is due to him, to God, it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay? So it is because of God that we are in Christ. It was none of your doing. He had mercy and drew you and saved you. And the result of that is that we have obtained the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. And then we see here in this verse, in verse 4, that we're looking at in Romans 10, 4, that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. Let me warn all of us to say what it does not mean. Often I've seen this text used with other texts, such as where it says that we're not under the law, but under grace. For Christians to say, aha, see, we're no longer accountable to obey God. God has given us a break. We're pretty much free to do what we please. Is that really what it means or any variation of that? Should we put aside God's law? Let's take a few looks here at what the scripture says, just to summarize. The words of our own very Lord Jesus in Luke 6.46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If you remain in a state of disobeying Christ, he is not your Lord. You are not the servant of Christ. You are the servant of sin. You are the servant of Satan. This is heavy, my brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus is telling us, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And then John 14, 15, again, our Lord Jesus speaking, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then John 15, 14 says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. This is a high calling, my brothers and sisters. Christians are called to obedience. Romans calls it the obedience of faith. Not the obedience of work so you can earn your way up, no. But rather that if we are Christians, you will obey. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. Otherwise, if we think, okay, I'm going to go and obey and do all these things so that God accepts me, so that I'm righteous. We fall in the same trap that Paul is condemning the Jewish, the, the Jewish nation for. I'm going to do, 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 so I can be good. No, 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 no. Because you are God's child, you will obey. We have a new nature. We have new desires. We have a new heart. We have a hatred for sin. Because we love Christ. If we love Christ, we're going to hate sin. Okay, so it does not mean that we put aside God's law. There's this term often used to describe this concept of putting aside God's law or we're no longer accountable. Antinomianism. Anti-against, anomos, law. Anti-law. Against the law of God, to be specific in, in this theology term. And there's varying degrees of antinomianism. The most extreme form, unfortunately, within Christian circles 
is that since we are saved by grace apart from works, that's a correct premise, we're saved by grace apart from works, that therefore we have been set free from being accountable to any moral standard. That's a wrong conclusion. What is the correct conclusion then to the fact that we are saved by grace through faith? Titus 2, verses 11 and 12 summarize it for us. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, again, the grace, like we don't deserve it, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Does that sound like we are excused from obeying God's law? No. I'll mention another form of antinomianism, which is sometimes popular in Christian circles. That would be spiritual antinomianism, which in short claims that while the Christian does have a responsibility to obey God's law or God's precepts, we're going to do it in a spiritualized fashion that according to the situation, basically the Holy Spirit will speak to me and then I will determine case by case if what I'm doing is right or wrong or whether I should do something or not do it. I will depend on an internal prompting from the Holy Spirit. What could go wrong with that? Don't our sinful and wicked nature will make us justify ourselves in our sins. Well, we cannot depend on our subjectivity in order to know whether we should do something or not. God has revealed His law. In other words, are we going to depend on the prompting of the Holy Spirit to determine whether idolatry is wrong? Is there a time when the Holy Spirit would prompt you to give you an exception to idolatry? Also, is it not written that murder is wrong? Or again, is there a time when the Holy Spirit will prompt you to say, in a particular instance, it's actually okay? Is that so, my brothers and sisters? Is adultery not a sin? Or could the Holy Spirit at one point prompt me to say, actually, in this case, it's okay to me to go out on my wife. Is this such a case? And what happens, obviously these are extreme examples, but my brothers and sisters, we cannot trust our filthy, dirty hearts to justify things that we want to do. No, we have the revealed will of God for our lives. And as we think about this, how can people do this just depend on their subjective mind to determine whether something is right or wrong. My brothers and sisters, as outrageous as that may sound, let us not take this attitude of, I can't believe somebody does that. Rather, realize that to some extent, all of us have done that. Rationalizing our sin and thinking that in this particular case, like God will give me a break. Wrong. So then, if it does not mean then that we get a pass and now we get to do what we want according to whatever internal convictions we have, then what, is done, what does it mean? Well, first, we reject antinomianism, 
we do not put aside God's law. Rather, we acknowledge that God has revealed His will for our obedience in the written law. And secondly, that by grace through faith, because we have been saved, those who are saved are empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow in sanctification and obedience in our daily walks. Okay, Every day, sanctification, meaning we are becoming more and more like our Savior each and every day. When we sin, we repent, we get up, and we keep pursuing righteousness. We keep pursuing following after Christ, following after His example. We don't do it perfectly, but that is our standard. We do not adopt any subjectivity in following God's standard. It is already revealed. <clears throat> so it says then, let's get back to the text, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When it says the end, the Greek there telos, is the state of affairs that a plan is intended to achieve upon completion. It's done. Like Jesus did it. Christ has achieved what the law demanded. He did that perfectly. So then what is the benefit of Jesus having done so? We saw that it does not mean that therefore we're not accountable to the law anymore. We absolutely are. What it means then is that Christ had brought a benefit. What is that benefit? By accomplishing what the law required? Righteousness, true righteousness. And then who gets that benefit of righteousness and how? The verse tells us. Everyone who believes. That's the who and that's the how. Everyone the whole world? No. Everyone who believes gets that benefit of obtaining the righteousness. Jesus has accomplished what is required to obtain righteousness. And this is why we come all the way around to the title of the sermon. Christ is the only hope for true righteousness. Alright, so then let us look as usual to three reflections of what we have learned and how we can further apply this text in our lives. First, let me ask you personally, how is your zeal and your devotion? All of us have zeal and devotion, my brothers and sisters, all of us. First, is it even to Christ, the zeal and devotion that we have? Because it could be toward a number of other things. How is your devotion? Our prayer should be that God may grant us the strength, the endurance, the perseverance, so that our zeal and our devotion is toward Christ, according to true knowledge of who He is, submitting to the righteousness that is ours in Christ. And if our devotion and our zeal is not toward Christ, it's a time for us to repent. Secondly, as we saw that Paul had a burden for the Jewish folks, how's your burden for somebody else? We all have a lot of issues, some more extreme than others, granted. But 
how is your burden for someone, specifically, think of someone who is not saved. And maybe if you don't have that zeal or that burden for them, that you should think of someone. Paul had a burden, a desire that he took to God in prayer, and then he did something about it. So a challenge for you today, who is that someone that you should have a burden for that is not a Christian? My brothers and sisters, whoever that is, you are called to be burdened for them, to be praying for them, to be a good witness to them. That the promise of the righteousness of Christ may be theirs. Okay, so how is your zeal? Who are you burdened for? And then lastly, let us rest in this. Please, you, rest in this. That Jesus has accomplished the righteousness that you need. The ultimate true righteousness that God requires has been accomplished by Jesus. Now, ensure that you have a, attained that righteousness by grace, through faith, trusting in Christ, repenting from sin. Knowing that you cannot do it, but that Christ has done it. Believing that he lived a life you cannot live. That he died on the cross in your place for the judgment that you deserved. And that when he was buried, he rose again from the grave. And because he has conquered death, he gives you the assurance that you also will conquer death. Not only spiritually, but physically. Rest in that truth. You don't have to work for your righteousness, but you have to trust in Christ. And the confirmation of that true faith in the context of the sermon today is that you will be burdened for those who are not saved. You will have true zeal for God. And in the areas that you're lacking, you're going to repent and seek God. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have brought us here to listen to your word, to be accountable to your word, to be accountable to your people, and that as we fellowship, as we love each other, as we exhort each other, Lord, that we be accountable to each other for the ways in which we fall short of the example that Paul has given us this morning. That we may have a godly zeal according to spirit and truth. That we would be burdened to love each other, those that are in the faith and even those that are not in the faith. And that we would rest in the promise of Christ, that he has given us his righteousness as we trust in him and forsake sin. Thank you, Lord, for you are gracious, for you are great. May you make this true in our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.